Usually people leave halfway through my message. It's rare that someone leaves right at the beginning. Okay, I know a bunch of youth here. You want to vote with your feet. You'd rather not listen to me. You don't have to ask them twice, do you? You just sort of open the door and they get to go. Thank you, guys. Okay. Romans chapter 5. Are you ready for Romans chapter 5? This is called the first fruits of grace. Now, the first word of chapter 5 is therefore. What does this mean? It means we should look at what just happened in chapter 4 before we go on to the body of chapter 5 because they're related. He's going to reach some conclusions, but it's based on things that were said in the previous chapter. So let's just look at the uh, final uh, three verses of chapter 4 so we set the context for chapter 5. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. He's talking about Abraham. Abraham uh, was, uh, believed God and acted in according, uh, according to God's command, even though he had no idea where he was going. Can you imagine leaving absolutely everything you have, everything you've spent a lifetime building up, and God says, it's time to go, and you say, where? And God says, I'm not going to tell you. Just go. Well, <laughs> what do you mean just go? Well, just leave. Pick a direction and go. Just leave. And he actually does. He obeyed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. But it's not for him alone. It's also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness. There's a book in heaven. It's the accounting book. It's a ledger book. It's got good and bad on it. The bad things you've done and the good things you've done. It's all recorded. My book is very short. My good book is very short. My bad book is very long. If I had to live with that my whole life, I don't think I could do it. I'd be, I'd be so depressed. So there's this book of right and wrong. And God comes along and with one stroke of his heavenly pen with one thought, he credits you with righteousness. And everything on the dark side of the ledger instantly disappears. Isn't that something? He credits righteousness to you. You didn't deserve it. He just did it. For us, now where does this righteousness come from? Well, it comes for us who believe in him. So to get this righteousness is a matter of belief. But isn't it incredible? Look at what you have to believe for. You actually have to believe that every bad thing you've ever done is just instantly wiped out and you've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus. Guys, that's a big pill to swallow. One writer once said the scandal, you know, the word scandal means in the Greek it means to be so offended by the craziness of what you hear that you, you stop believing. He said the scandal of the, the good news of grace that we're looking at here, the scandal is not that it isn't good news, it's that it's too good. He said it, what's hard to believe is not that it's, oh, it's not good news, oh, it's good news, it's just too good. You ever heard that expression, too good to be true? I mean, it's, I, I, I just can't be, it's too good to be true. That's what hangs us up. I've told you this before, but maybe there's someone who hasn't heard it. I wanted to be a Christian when I was 19 years old. I mean, I wanted to be a Christian. I didn't, I didn't come to the Lord until I was 28 years old. Because as far as I was concerned, <laughs> I wasn't good enough to be a Christian, and I'd tried to clean up my act, and it never worked. And so I just wrote myself off and said, I can never be a Christian, but I'd really like to be one, but I can never be good enough. See, I didn't understand this. I was living under the law. You get what you deserve, and I don't deserve mercy. 
recognize the day that it started to dawn on me that he would love me and accept me the way I was and extend mercy to me? At first, I couldn't believe it. It kept coming through my mind, this thought, like it was, maybe it's true, but I thought, no, I just can't, it, it just can't be true for me, not for me. It took nine years of wanting to be a Christian and having this thought whispered into my ear before I finally believed it. And even then, it was still stupendous. Even then, it was like, I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. It's irrational. It's unjust. So I was measuring justice according to the Greek standard, which is where you get what you deserve. But did you know that the same word in Hebrew that means justice is the word they use for mercy? It's the same word. Is that crazy or what? God's justice is his mercy. And his mercy is just. So if we'll believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, then we will have righteousness purely and simply credited to us. And we believe that Jesus was delivered unto death because of our sins and for our sins and died with our sins. In fact, here's the most radical thought of all. I always used to think, you know, my sin, our sin was like a very filthy coat. And uh, before he died, he decided to put the coat on and he wore the coat to the cross and somehow on the cross, the coat fell off. That's what I always used to think till I ran into this one verse. He became sin for me. Are you kidding me? Perfect innocence becomes the cumulative sin of every wrong thing everybody's ever done. And he becomes that sin. And the most horrific moment on the cross was not the physical pain which was profound. The worst moment on the cross is when he realized he had to be judged for the sin that he had become. And he actually said to his father, why have you forsaken me? And his father had forsaken him in that moment because his father could not be with, with him as perfect sin. God can't be perfect sin with his son. And he died feeling exactly what it is to be utterly and completely Guilty. Now, if the story ended there, we'd have no hope. But he was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised perfect. And because he became our sin when he was raised from the dead, we became his righteousness. Because we died with him. Sin in us died with him on the cross. This is what we believe. This is the heart of our faith. And this is the last few verses of chapter 4. It's a statement of faith. We have chosen through faith to believe that Jesus died for our sins, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us unconditionally and his love is perfect. We also believe as an act of faith that he was raised from the dead. And the power that raised him from the dead is available to live in us that we can please him. This is the essence of our faith. And now Paul begins in chapter 5 by setting out the first fruits that we may expect from God's gift of grace through Jesus' death on the cross. Isn't this cool? He starts the chapter with, Okay, so you believe all these wonderful things. Now let me tell you what you get. Let me tell you the fruits of what your belief is going to accomplish in your life. And he starts out right away with the therefore. And he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified, that's that credited with righteousness in that book in heaven. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you ask people, and I often do right after they've accepted Jesus as their Savior, I've been asking this question just because I'm curious for years, decades. How do you feel right now? What do they, what do they all say? Peace. I feel this peace like I've never felt peace before. That is the first fruit of righteousness, is peace. The first fruit of grace is peace with God. Now, the word peace used here comes from the, the root to join. And it is to bring together that which was broken or separated. If you had a broken arm and the doctor set it, set those bones back together, and they started to knit together, you could say he put that arm at peace. Isn't that interesting? Put that arm at peace. It's a knitting together, bringing together something that was broken. One definition of this word, this is a theological definition out of the theological dictionary. I just absolutely love this. Listen to this. Peace is the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation. See, under religion, you're never sure of your salvation. You're living in that account's balance between good and bad and you're hoping that the good will outweigh the bad and at the last minute you, if you've just got a few more good things on the good side than you have bad things maybe in the last minute you're going to get to go to heaven can you imagine a life lived with that tension that insecurity that fear it's the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through christ and so fearing nothing from God. And so fearing nothing from God. There is no judgment. There is no reason to feel insecure in your relationship with God. Even when you're failing, there's no reason to feel insecure in your relationship with God. He's continually reaching out to you. He's continually drawing you towards him. His mercy never ends. It just keeps on coming. Fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatever sort that is. Okay, look. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, my peace I live with you. I leave with you. Remember he said that? And he said, not like the world gives peace. That's a huge, huge distinction. See, our peace is not like the world gives peace. How does the world give peace? Circumstantial. When everything is perfect. When you're going to Hawaii tomorrow. We have some people here who are going to Hawaii tomorrow. And, yeah, okay, listen to me. This is important. <laughs> They're going to Hawaii tomorrow. <laughs> it was 109 degrees at my house on Friday. And it was 100 and some, and they get to go to Hawaii? This can only mean I've sinned. <laughs> this can only mean the rest of you have sinned. So where's the grace and mercy of God? Why aren't you taking us with you? You see, when the world gives peace, it gives it because everything's going perfectly. And you can finally say, oh, everything's going perfectly. I, I, I have some peace. But you know, that can end by this afternoon. You can't hold on to circumstantial peace. It can be taken from you at any moment by anything. But the peace that God gives is content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. You can be in the middle of a storm and still be at peace. Jesus sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And the definition ends with this. Z3W2P.
And it ends with this. I didn't put it up there, so let me read it to you. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is according to a conception distinctly peculiar to Christianity. Our faith is the only faith that sees peace this way. All the other religions, either, either peace comes because you meditate so much you're able to cancel out the bad things that are going on for a little while as long as you're in that transcendent state, then okay, you've got some peace. Or the peace that comes because everything's perfect the way the world gives peace. But this kind of peace is peculiar to Christianity because it's a peace that you didn't have to do anything to get. Or to maintain. And it is not available in any other religion. And it's this grace. This freely given peace that distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions. We do not have peace with God because we earn it. We have it because of his goodness and not our own. And because, listen to me, because we've not earned it, we do not have to stress about receiving it or keeping it. Even the responsibility is not ours of keeping it. From this statement of peace with God, Paul goes on to describe what this peace accomplishes in our lives. And he says this, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this great grace in which we now stand. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away. He's talking about the Gentiles. And peace to those who were near. He's talking about the Jews. For through him we both have access. Now remember I started the Roman series by saying that there was a disunity between the Jewish church and the, and the Gentile church in Rome. And so he's, he's addressing this disunity even here when he's speaking to the both of them and he says, well, Jesus gives peace to you guys, you Gentiles who were far away. You were lost. You didn't even have a religion. But he also gives peace to those who are near, the Jews. You see, he's saying to them, neither of what you believed before is important. What's important here is that you have peace through Jesus. And he's, he's uniting them in this concept that there's something beyond what they were thinking before or even the religions they were following before. There's this new experience of God's peace. And through him we both have access to the Father. Hello. You don't just have a peace in your heart. There's a relational aspect to this peace. You actually are ushered into the presence of God. You have access into the presence of God. When Alan Vincent used to come here, he told a story of uh, a friend of his in England who had a charity. And, you know, in, in England, if you have a particular product that the queen uses, like, have you ever seen HP sauce? It's got the little seal, the little royal seal on it, you know, Her Majesty. Now, if, if Her Majesty is really nuts about HP sauce and you produce HP sauce, you can ask her if she'll put the seal on there and you can use that and say, this is like the royal salsa. So you see these things, you know, the various things get her, her uh, approval. So this guy with the charity... He had an appointment to see Prince Philip, the queen's husband, to see if he could get the royal seal on his charity. And he only had, literally, his appointment was like 10 minutes long. You got 10 minutes with Prince, Prince Philip, 10 minutes. So he's all prepared, and he's got it all worked out, and he's going to do his pitch. And he gets in there, and he starts doing his pitch, and he's kind of explaining it to Prince Philip, and, and he's going pretty good, but he's only got a few minutes left, and bang, the door kicks open, and in comes Prince Philip's kid. What's his name? Yeah, well, there were several of them. Anyway, the, the little guy comes in with a toy. It's not working anymore. And he says to his dad, Prince Philip, 
Daddy, my toy won't work. And Prince Philip just stops everything else he's doing with this appointment, and he starts working on this toy for his son. And this guy with the charity, I mean, he's like, oh, no, these are my minutes. These are my minutes. The kid's using my minutes. And he's, and the little kid's just, hey, Dad, will you fix my toy? So Dad spends the rest of the time fixing the kid's toy. What's the difference between the kid and the guy with the charity? Access. The little boy is his son. I mean, he can come in any time and say, Dad, will you please fix my toy? The other guy's a servant. Different set of rules. This grace gives us access into the presence of the Father and not just access into his presence, into his presence as his child. You come as his child. Your primary identity is not as a servant. Your primary identity is as a child. And a child has security a servant will never have. I've said this to you before. A servant can fail at being a servant, but a child can never fail at being a child. You are ushered into a foundation that is so strong because it is familial. It is family. You are now his child. That brings a security that can't come any other way. Access. Peace. The word access used here means to introduce or to bring into the presence of. Paul's saying that grace has brought us into the presence of God. We have peace. We're joined with God because of grace. And we stand in a relationship with him as our father. See, people without grace, there's no access to God. And I know this is considered to be exclusive and politically incorrect, but there is no other faith that gives us access to God. There is no other religion that deals with the issue of our sin. There is no other religion that turns us into God's child. Our faith is unique. It's unique because Jesus died for our sins. Now Paul goes on with the unfolding of the benefits of our new restored relationship with God. And he says this. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's tear this down one word at a time. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's look at rejoice. The word rejoice translates to exult in or to boast. And it is a joy well beyond happiness in the moment. It is a joy that lasts. And the word hope means what we anticipate with pleasure. What we anticipate with pleasure. And it doesn't connote a doubt as in, boy, I sure hope this works out. You ever heard people express their hope that way? Oh boy, I sure hope so. That, that's, not, that's not what this word hope means. It refers to something we can know is coming like a sunrise. It is often used to describe the Christian's joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Are you joyful and confident? that you're going to heaven? Are you joyful and confident that you're going to heaven? Can you say this morning to yourself or to anybody else, I know I'm going to heaven? See, that's, that's a test, isn't it? Of how much do I really believe? How secure am I in my faith? Do I really believe this? Jesus' death on the cross and you believing in that to take care of your sins seals the issue. You're going to heaven. And what kind of peace does that bring? 
When the world's in turmoil and everything's going wrong and circumstances are absolutely horrible and you haven't faced anything like this for a long, long time and all you can see is darkness in the, in the tunnel. But you're certain of this. I'm going to heaven. This present darkness is not the end of the issue. This present darkness does not define my future. My future is with him in heaven. I'm going to be with him forever. Can you imagine the peace that brings and the joy that that brings? What we anticipate with pleasure. Joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The word glory used here means much more than just having eternal life or even getting to heaven. Now that's good. Eternal life and getting to heaven, that's fantastic. That, you know, that's like, um, what would you pay for the secrets of the universe? This is the secrets of, the, this is good stuff. This is big. But wait, you also get a 29-piece Teflon-coated cook set. But if you buy it today, you also get the Jinsu knife that cuts through the chains of hell. But wait, if you call in the next five minutes, you also get a hair transplant. We rejoice, we exult, we boast in the hope, this, this sense of certainty, what we, what we wait for with joyful and confident expectation of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? What are we waiting for that's the glory of God in heaven? The word glory here means much more than just eternal life or even getting to heaven. It has to do with finally experiencing the fullness of God. Here's what the word actually means. Quote, the splendor, the brightness, the magnificence, the excellence, the preeminence, the dignity, and the majesty of God. We have not scratched the surface. We have moments in our life, sometimes during worship, sometimes in quietness and prayer, where we sense the presence of God and we get a rumor, we get an innuendo of his beauty and his goodness and it hits us like a truck. And sometimes we can't get up off the ground afterwards. Seriously. The first time it happened to me, it was in the back room of my apartment in Canada at about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I tried to go back to bed down the hall, but I couldn't get up, and I had to crawl to my bed to get into it. And when I got into my bed, I couldn't go to sleep. I spent two to three hours seeing visions of heaven. The glory, I could not go to sleep. I was completely overwhelmed. It was a... It changed my life that night. That is nothing but an innuendo of what is going to happen when we get to heaven and see what he's really like with no veil, no confusion, no doubt, no fear. Can you, I mean, how do we survive that? We have to be so transformed coming into his presence that we can survive the beauty that we're going to see. My father used to say, well, you know, the, the, reason, the reason that God wouldn't let Moses see his glory in full and said, well, I'll put you in this little crack in the rock and you can sit in this little crack in the rock and I'm going to pass by really quickly and you'll just get a glimpse. And I always wondered, why didn't he show the whole thing? My father said, because the love of God is so great it would have sucked his soul out of him. His soul would have been so hungry to be, to be united with God and God's beauty and goodness that his soul couldn't even stay. It would just be torn out and united with God. I don't know if he's right or wrong, but I sure love the picture. Can you imagine what it's like to see God? To see God, the splendor, the brightness, the magnificence, the excellence, the preeminence, the dignity, and the majesty of God with no interference. 
gosh, I guess you, I guess you could call that joy. There's no word, there's no word strong enough for what that's going to be like. It means we finally have what our heart has always wanted. To see him perfectly without interference from our own brokenness and sin and the sins in the world. It is what Moses longed for and finally experienced a little bit when he begged God, show me your glory. And the experience was so powerful that his face shone for days afterwards. We experience tiny, tiny, tiny little moments, little flashes, but it's what we all hunger for more than anything. And these moments leave us joyful and confident and expectant of what we will have with him in heaven. Come on, people. Where's the amen? I mean, come on. Are you, are you getting just like a hint of what our future is going to look like with him? And it's never going to end. And it's so magnificent, we will never get used to it. You see, because he's infinite. And we will begin experiencing all of this great stuff about him. And we'll go, oh my God. Literally, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But we won't be jaded by it, you see. It won't become, oh well, you know God, he's pretty special, yeah. I remember the first day I got here, boy, that was really something. But I'm kind of getting used to it and the food's really good. You know, like an infinite buffet table that just goes on into the future. And I, I just graze the ribs, just keep eating the ribs, don't stop, just get... You see, the deal is, because he's infinite, your enjoyment of him will increase every day, not decrease. You will never get used to him. He will never become passe. He cannot become passe. You cannot get used to him. You will stay in a constant state of amazement and joy and wonder, and it will only get bigger every day because he's infinite. How can we define anything this good? Our greatest imagination doesn't do it. This is what we're hoping for. This is what we're believing for. When you put your faith in him, you signed up for this. This is the secrets of the universe and the 29-piece Teflon-coated cook set and the Jinsu knife. Amen. And deep in our hearts, people, this is what we all hunger for. In this wild hope that it's really true. And we can look forward with expectation. So now what that does for the present moment is no matter how bad the present moment is, and I know some of you are living in the most horrible present moments, all strung together. But what this does is it gives us a hope that's eternal. It gives us a view and a picture of what's coming. And this present darkness is not going to last much longer. And what we're coming to is profound. And interestingly, here's how we steal something from the devil. The more we suffer, the more we rejoice in what's coming. See, the devil wants you to completely lose hope. But we have a hope of what's coming. And it's phenomenal. And it can't even be described in words. So this present darkness is not the final word on our lives. Okay. The Apostle Paul is a very practical guy. He always has applications at the end of his messages. He tells us what we're living for and where we're going, and then he tells us how to live. So he turns his attention now to the practical application of the benefit of this grace, this position with God. 
this joining with God. He, he turns to what's practical. See, every gift must be applied or used to be fully appreciated. You may get the phone call from some lawyer in New York that says, are you the great-grand-nephew blah, 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 of so-and-so? Oh, yes, I guess. Well, you know, there's $600 million in a bank account. And now you're the only surviving heir, so uh, go get an accountant. You're going to need one. $600 million. Wow. Well, I don't believe that. Just another crank call. Click. The money's there. Are you going to use it? What's the practical application of this grace that we've received? Now listen to this. He, does, he gives it to us. I, I love this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been, past tense, is already been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who He has given us. Now the first practical application of all this grace is that we can rejoice in our sufferings. And this is what I've been hinting at all along. Because we know our sufferings produce perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope hope does not disappoint us because god's love has been poured into our hearts by the holy spirit who's been given to us well it's simple paul's telling us that because of the restored relationship with god we have peace and through this peace we have direct access to god and we've received grace from God, and we stand in a state of perfect forgiveness. And because of this, we rejoice, we boast, we exult in the expectation of what it will be like to know God perfectly and see His glory in fullness. And here's the point. Because of all this, we can face our sufferings differently. Our suffering does not define us or our faith. Our suffering is momentary and it's passing. And we know it's passing because we know it's waiting for us in heaven, Him, in all His glory. Now knowing this produces a new quality in us and that quality is perseverance. What's perseverance? I won't stop believing what I'm believing. I won't stop believing what I'm believing. All this good stuff that Mark just said, I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to go on believing it irrespective of circumstances. My belief is going to exist above my circumstances. My faith is higher than my deep, dark spots. And when I persevere in believing in this, it produces something called character. Character comes from the word experiment. Character here means this, to prove through trial or experience. Character means that which has been proven or approved through testing. When you persevere in believing through darkness, an experiment is taking place within you. Is he going to believe or not? Is she going to believe or not? Your belief is on trial. It's being tested. And when you persevere in your belief, you develop something called character. And that is something proved through trial or experience. Character doesn't come through good times. A person who has experienced nothing but good times you don't want as a friend. They're selfish and narcissistic. They think the world exists for them and revolves around them. They're self-consumed and they make terrible husbands. <laughs> and they make worse wives. Little princesses. Oh, I'm just a princess. No, you're not. There's a pea somewhere under the mattress. 
We can now continue our hope in him through our sufferings because our faith has been tested and we have found to be proven. And it isn't proof to God. He already knows. It's proof to you. You can take joy in the character that your suffering is developing. It's your experiment. You're the experiment. But you get to have the joy of having passed the test of the experiment. You know, I, I went through this really bad time, a period of depression, and now my life blew up, and there were parts of me all over the place. No, I'm, it was really bad. I mean, it was really, really bad. But when I came out of it, I liked me better now than the person I was then before it happened. It settled so many issues for me of where my security was and my identity. I, after suffering, you will end up liking yourself better afterwards than you liked yourself before if you will persevere. Don't stop believing what you've chosen to believe. And the character produces hope which is that joyful expectation of what's coming. We can now continue our hope in him through our suffering because our faith has been tested and has been found to be proven. And this proof to ourselves and of ourselves produces more hope, what we anticipate with pleasure in heaven with him. Now finally, and yes, it's closing. Finally, Paul gives us one more proof upon which to base our hope. And this is my favorite. And he says this. And this hope, this expectation, does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a practical proof he wants to give right now in your life before heaven, before all that good stuff and everything else. Right now, in the middle of whatever trial you're in, he wants to give you a piece of evidence that's going to help you to have hope. And that is the experience of the love of God that the Holy Spirit touches our hearts with. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to provide us with experiential evidence upon which to base our hope. The Holy Spirit pours out the love of the Father into our hearts. And in these moments, we receive a down payment in kind of what we're going to live in for eternity. Now, these little moments, like the thing that happened in the back room to me, I mean, it, it was absolutely overwhelming, but it was nothing. Nothing compared to what's coming. But it was of the same kind. A, you go to Costco, people. And you eat all the samples you can. And you make friends with all the sample ladies so that they see you coming and they cut an extra two or three for you and put it in a little cup for Mark. I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> Those samples are a down payment deposit of what's in the freezer. Now, I don't need what's in the freezer because I ate eight or nine or ten of those samples. But it's a down payment. It's a sample of, it's evidence of something you're going to have later. The Holy Spirit touches our heart with the love of the Father. And as, and as amazing as it is now, it's nothing compared to living in that reality. But it's a down payment. It's a deposit. It's telling us what's coming. It's evidence to help us to believe. The experiential evidence upon which to base our hope. He pours out the love of the Father into our hearts. And in these moments we receive a down payment in kind of what we're going to live in for eternity. Every touch of his love is a promise of what is to come. And these rumors of glory, these infinitesimally tiny and fleeting experiences of what will be our continual, external, internal, eternal experience of the goodness and the glory of God who is our Father.
how bad can it get? Well, I'm going to tell you how bad it can get. This is why Stephanie was crying during the announcements. We have friends over at New Hope Church, Byron and Lynn. Known them for 25 years. We're talking really, really good people. And Byron and Lynn's son, Ryan, and daughter-in-law, Laura, and grandson, Caleb, had been living in the Republic of Georgia in Eastern Europe for years, laboring to reach the unknown people groups there for Jesus. And on the 6th, they experienced the greatest tragedy that a family can experience. Byron and Lynn were notified on Friday by the U.S. Embassy. French friends had called the police because Ryan and Lauren Caleb had not returned from a scheduled camping trip and would not answer their phones. They'd gone camping to avoid the 104-degree heat. A flash flood happened and all three of them were killed. This is what Lynn and Byron wrote. We are in utter shock and powerless, but in amazing peace, despite our extreme grief and buckets of tears. Praise the Lord for our dear Christian friends who live a few doors down the way. They came over with hugs and prayers. Ryan and Laura and Caleb are with Jesus. They're thankful for the wonderful times of family connection that they just had during a three-month visit to the U.S. We're in utter shock and powerless, but in amazing peace, despite our extreme grief and buckets of tears, because they are with Jesus. Now, I know these guys. They're good friends. They're not just saying what Christians are supposed to say. They're saying what they're experiencing. This is the worst loss of mother and father can have. But they are experiencing something that is supernatural, that is beyond circumstance. It's the peace of God and his presence. And they know this. They are going to spend eternity with their son, daughter-in-law, and grandson. They're going to spend eternity together. So let's pray for them, all right? Right now, let's pray for them. Byron and Lynn request prayer for the many painful decisions they'll need to make bringing the bodies home, traveling to Georgia to take care of the house, and planning celebrations of Ryan and Laura's lives, both at home and in Georgia, as a testimony and witness to Jesus. Father, we're going to choose right now to believe everything in this sermon. We're going to choose to believe that your peace is beyond circumstances. That your love is tangible and real even in the middle of great loss and great pain. Father, we're going to choose to believe that for this family. We're also going to choose to believe that for ourselves and our friends and our family. And we pray as one body united in unity. We pray for the release of your Holy Spirit to Byron and Lynn in a way that they have never experienced before. God, we pray for your love to touch them in the middle of this sorrow with such a reality that they know your presence like they've never known your presence before. Let's keep them in prayer, all right?
Isn't it great that we don't just have to choose to believe these things without any evidence? Isn't it great that he helps us? That he gives us his presence and he gives us his Holy Spirit and he touches us with his love? And isn't it great that he uses other people to do that? Isn't it great that we're not alone in our faith? That we're surrounded by people that care about us and know us? Isn't it great that we can admit when we need help? I'm just thinking, if you're here this morning and you're going through a hard time, now, you know, it'd be very easy to look at Byron and Lynn's situation and say, well, I'm not going through something like that, so I can't, I can't reach out to God for some help. Of course you can. Whatever you're going through, whatever is difficult, whatever is a trial, whatever is testing your faith, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. Let somebody pray for you. Tell somebody what's going on. It can be a tiny, tiny little thing, but it's keeping you awake. And if it's keeping you awake and, and, and you're living in anxiety about it, then it's not a tiny little thing, is it? So if you need some help, you need some prayer, I invite you to come forward now and prayer team, if you'd come and take your places. We want to bless people with peace. We want to bless people with hope. We want to bless people with perseverance. We want to bless people with the touch from the Holy Spirit. So if you're going through anything at all, don't do it alone. Any anxiety, any worry, any darkness, any difficulty, come forward and get prayer so we can complete this message. See, a message isn't complete until it's applied, and the application of this one is don't leave home without it. Don't leave church without it. So we invite you to come now. We'll just worship a little bit. God bless you guys.